Hello, and welcome to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM, or on one of our appreciated radio syndicate partners, or on the Green Majority podcast. <clears throat> my name is David Hostetter with Stefan Hostetter. How you doing? Good, sitting in my bedroom during this time of of trying isolation. Mm, that's a good way of putting it. Yes, and uh, speaking of ways of putting it, it's been said uh, many times and in many different ways that the general rate of change in our so-called society has been speeding up. This has typically been attributed to technological change. Uh, each new technological leap comes quicker than the previous one, to the point where some more or less quacky theorists have posited a time in the near future at which the merging of the human organism with technology becomes inevitable, and the distinction between human and machine becomes impossible. But we also have the ongoing changes of the environment at large, as the Earth system as a whole has been catching up to vertiginously spiking global temperatures since the end of the Industrial Revolution, and we find ourselves in a climate that is changing faster and faster. Now, with billions of people around the world being ordered to stay at home to prevent the spread of the novel coronavirus, things seem to be changing even faster, with each day more surreal than the last, with spring flowers rising up from the ground, while caution tape is strung around the playgrounds and benches, and horror stories of chaotic authoritarianism drift in constantly from the radios and cell phones and computers. It would be too much to list all of these, but I'll note that there are places where homeless people and healthcare workers alike are being flogged by police in the streets for being outside. I'll also quote one example from Peter C. Baker, who writes in The Guardian that, quote, prisoners in New York State are getting paid less than a dollar an hour uh, to bottle hand sanitizer that they themselves are not allowed to use because it contains alcohol in a prison where they are not given free soap but must buy it in an on-site shop. So, we need to find a way to chill out and stay away from each other while maintaining our sanity. But we also need to look this situation in the face and think honestly about what it means and what its potentials are. Rupert Reed for Extinction Rebellion recently suggested that now is not the time to organize frantically for a Green New Deal, and that we should instead be just trying to get out of this with minimal damage. And the idea has merit, especially since, as put by Simran Guman of Lead Now, quote, last week the federal government announced the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, uh, the CERB program, to help many of us, or is that the CURB? I go CERB. The CERB program, to help many of us who are out of work because of COVID-19. It's a step in the right direction, but there are enormous gaps that could shut out thousands of people who still need help. Workers with two jobs who are laid off from one of them aren't eligible for the income support program. Part-time workers aren't covered unless every single shift is canceled. Recent grads who made less than $5,000 last year can't apply, even if they've lost a full-time job to this crisis. So we need to make sure that's what, that what's happening right now in response to the pandemic doesn't leave a bunch of people screwed. But it's also clear that major political and economic decisions are going to be made in response to this, and we need to make sure we don't move backwards and try to rebuild the systems that were killing us to begin with. We certainly need to take care of ourselves, but we also need to use this isolation time to critically analyze ourselves and the systems that be. 
As Chris Hedges said of the coronavirus in an interview with Roger Hallam of Extinction Rebellion, quote, It's the first fatal blow against the structures of industrial neoliberal society. These structures have been hollowed out and weakened by these corporate global forces, these speculators and financiers who've seized control not only of national economies. We just saw this with a stimulus package that provides gigantic bailouts to the airline industries, and we know from 2008 that they're gonna, what they're going to do with the money. That's why the stock market has rallied. They buy back their stock, they pay themselves huge bonuses, and they lay off their workers. So we've hollowed the country out. The foundations of capitalist democratic systems both in the UK and the United States are weak and tottering, and the pandemic that now faces us is the first assault against a structure that's so enfeebled that it can't handle it. The climate crisis we know will create a very similar phenomenon in that it will destroy coastal cities. We know that it already is, because of rising temperatures, increasing pandemics and the destruction of crops through droughts and wildfires and pests that are no longer in colder months controlled. He goes on to say, quote, The system is not going to respond to us. The only hope is to pit power against power, and that means to create centrifugal forces of power outside of the system. Anything within our power to obstruct and destroy the mechanisms of corporate power and their ability to garner profit. The selling of false hope is disempowering. The first thing we have to do is face the bleakness before us, even if we accept that we may not succeed. Our children are going to inherit what's left of this world. We have a moral imperative to get out and fight in every way we can to make this world sustainable for them. I don't like going to jail, but I'll do it. Even if we fail, we create a community. We nurture life within what I would call a culture of death. If you stand up and your criteria is to win, then you're going to be easily demoralized and defeated. But if you stand up because it's right, that of course doesn't mean you won't win, but it means that you're in it for the long term. That you're not wedded to the emotional highs and lows that characterize a consumer society. And Noam Chomsky Chomsky recently said in an interview with Shreko Harvat of DM25, uh, The coronavirus is serious enough, but it's worth recalling that there's a much greater horror approaching. We are racing to the edge of disaster far worse than anything that's happened in human history. As Donald Trump and his minions uh, are in the lead of racing to the abyss. In fact, there are two immense threats that we're facing. One is the growing threat of nuclear war, and the other, of course, is the growing threat of global warming. Both threats can be dealt with, but there isn't a lot of time. The coronavirus is a horrible plague and has terrifying consequences, but there will be recovery. The others, there won't be recovery. It's finished. If we don't deal with them, we're done. Peter C. Baker, in that same article quoted earlier, said, quote, Disasters and emergencies do not just throw light on the world as it is. They also rip open the fabric of normality. Through the hole that opens up, we glimpse possibilities of other worlds. Some thinkers who study disasters focus more on all that might go wrong. Others are more optimistic, framing crises not just in terms of what is lost, but also what might be gained. Every disaster is different, of course, and it's never just one or the other. Loss and gain always coexist. Only in hindsight will the contours of the new world we're entering uh, become clear. Dr. Abdul El Said on Democracy Now! recently said, quote, All of us are living in this system that has moved more of the means of wealth off to the very top 
leaving all the rest of us, whether it's because of healthcare or housing or an insecure gig job in a gig economy or the porous barrier between corporations and government, have left us fundamentally insecure, and that insecurity has consequences for all of us. If it wasn't this, it might have been a climate event. And we are, as a society, ill-prepared for these things, because our people are are unfortunately living at the slippery edge of our economy, and because we have torn our public service and our public infrastructure apart to sell it to the highest bidder. He is speaking, of course, about the United States. And finally, Dr. Aaron Bernstein said in in, in an interview uh, with Neela Banerjee of Inside Climate News, quote, We have transformed the nature of the Earth. We have fundamentally changed the composition of the atmosphere. And as such, we shouldn't be surprised that that affects our health. We have, as a species, grown up in partnership with the planet and life we live with. So when we change the rules of the game, we shouldn't expect that it wouldn't affect our health, for better or worse. That's true of the climate. And the same principle holds for the emergence of infections. If you look at the emerging infectious diseases that have moved into people from animals or other sources over the last several decades, the vast majority of those are coming from animals. And the majority of those are coming from wild animals. We have transformed life on Earth. We are having a massive effect on how the relationship between, on the relationships between uh, all life on Earth operate and also with ourselves. We shouldn't be surprised that these emerging diseases pop up. The principle is that we're really changing how we relate to other species on Earth, and that matters to our risk for infections. So there's a, there's a couple of things I want to pull from here. Um, Starting with the fact that, again, as a reminder, we record this now on, on Wednesday and it comes out on Friday. So if something incredible happens tomorrow and we're not covering it, we apologize. We'll cover it on our, on our April 8th show. And, but to, to the, one of the first thing that comes to mind, I mean, I'll go sort of backwards in time, is, is the mention of the brittleness of our society. And something that we've, come, we've, we've talked about before, more so actually in regards to the... The, 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 the actually the crumbling infrastructure that we actually have, less so than the social infrastructure that we have. However, both are clearly in display right now. And in the fact that we just have not built a society that is ready to withstand a lot of these coming waves. And I found myself asking myself a very odd question yesterday, which, uh, which there, was a, there was an earthquake uh, in Idaho. Mm. Uh, it was about a, not a, like a 6.5, which is like big for Idaho, but not huge. And it uh, and I, I again ask myself how many how, what kind of disasters would 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 be required to start happening right now for me to begin to believe that maybe we're actually in like the biblical end times, and I think we're about two volcanoes away is what I've decided. Mm. Um, but uh, it, but but what we're seeing right now is highlights the, the brittleness that we that our society's not designed. Uh, right now to to be able to absorb these types of things we're not you know there's not these types of jobs where people can afford to not get work we've, we've created this very precarious set of people who now all must be taken care of because we've created no systems to do so by themselves we've created no systems to allow them to do to, to do anything else beyond now just hope that they won't fall through the cracks of these government systems because we've done nothing there's, there's nothing to catch them whatsoever and and but what we're seeing, uh, you know, again, previously mentioned in, in, in earlier in the piece, the fact the concept of building power outside of the current structures, what we're seeing this time is actually a, a monumental shift towards versions of that. 
you know, um, the there there are there are these conversations going on about rent strikes, about whole buildings organizing to not pay the rent to landlords. Uh, in in, res, in a residential setting, there's you know there are these conversations around Amazon had a had a Amazon workers had a walkout. Instacart workers had a walkout to demand to demand better protective equipment for themselves because they're they're considered essential services. And you have all these people, as mentioned on the show last week, who you know who we have decided don't deserve fifteen dollars an hour, who are now we're declaring our essential. And all these people, you know, and all these people who who the society decided is worth billions of dollars, who clearly we don't need at all because they're just sitting at home. Oh, yes, we couldn't give them fifteen dollars because at the price of everything would go up. Then yes, exactly, yeah. Um, and now, and now they're now they're the ones being sent to the front lines to you know to to make sure that we get all our goods from Amazon. Who and then and, and Amazon is literally asking for donations to give their so they can pay their employees sick sick days. Donations? Uh, they they, they set up a thing it, like it's a. Mm. The, wow. But like, but this is the world. Like, you know, here's Jeff Bezos, who has enough money to basically do whatever he wants, and 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 yet refuses to give you know even the basic set of of living standards. And and so we are seeing power being built. We're seeing power being built in these places, in these in the, in these areas. And then we're also seeing power being built when we look at the caremongering uh, response. You know, the, the the people who are organizing within their own buildings to ensure that that, that their that their neighbors are who are at risk are being taken care of like that is a form of, of building power and building uh, safety and security outside of the structures that we that we consider as, as important today. But for that being said, I do honestly uh, need to slightly disagree uh, with the Extinction Rebellion man at the top of this. Rupert Reed, I believe his name is. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, brilliant man, not arguing he's not brilliant, but I, but it's, to me, it seems like the, you know, maybe, maybe he means in two weeks, we must begin to start planning for how we, how to recover from this. And right, right now is not the option. Maybe. But to me, we have to be responding and we have to be finding a way to use this opportunity to build uh, a future because the, because as we know, the, the disaster capitalists of the world, um, are going to. You know, we are, you know, there, I believe there is a, there, there's a note that seven oil execs uh, oil, are going to show up at the White House uh, on Friday in person uh, to talk to Trump. You know, that there, the Trump administration, which we'll cover probably next week, is currently using this weird window right now to dismantle even more environmental regulations. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and as we'll cover in the next segment uh, with Lauren, the, the, we are still finding new ways to entrench oil power into, uh, in in this country, you know, and that, and we haven't even begun to. Use, they've not yet even announced the the big oil bailout that we that everyone's expecting that will still be coming. And again, may have been announced by by the time this is Friday. And so, so to me, this is the time we must respond. And and it's interesting to see uh, see what some groups are doing in regards to a response. And so, I'm just going to highlight one, and then we'll go to music break. Uh, and the one I would respond to is uh, uh, there's a there's a movement that uh, 350.org is is coming forward with the principles for a just recovery from COVID-19, um, mm. and I think they've they've correctly identified that you know that the the recovery must create a, a better world in in many ways. And there f- there are five principles. I'll read the principle and then a sh- and, and then their one line description of each. Uh, their five principles are one: put people's health first, no exceptions. So the, to resource health services everywhere, ensure access for all. Two, provide economic relief directly to the people. Focus on people and workers, particularly those marginalized in existing systems, our short-term needs and long-term conditions. Three, help workers and communities, not corporate executives. 
Assistance directed at specific industries must be channeled to communities and workers, not shareholders or corporate executives, and never to corporations that don't commit to tackling the climate crisis. And as a very quick aside, I will note that uh, this is already being failed in the United States, where they bailed out a significant number of airline industries who today, one of the United or something, laid off a whole bunch of staff days after being given billions of dollars. Um, and so like, why is that money not as going to the staff who are trying to keep, you know, trying to keep alive, uh, for, to create resilience for future crises. Uh, we must create millions of decent jobs that will help power a just recovery and transition for workers and communities to the zero carbon future we need. And five to build solidarity and community across borders and to not empower authoritarians. Transfer technology and finance to lower-income countries and communities to allow them to respond using these principles and share solutions across borders and communities. Do not use the crisis as an excuse to trample on human rights, civil liberties, and democracies. So there is a there is a huge list of supporting organizations uh, on their website. If you want to learn more, you can go to 350.org slash just recovery, and you can see more there. 350.org. Yeah, slash just recovery. And so I'll leave you with that. We'll go to a music break. Well, we'll wait, back. let me uh, just respond to your sardonic comment about the biblical end times. All right. Because you didn't mention that the Etobicoke Creek, the, which is the west end of Toronto, uh, has ran red this week uh, because of an ink spill. So the Etobicoke Creek is as red as the Scamander. And... Uh, Billions, hundreds and of billions of locusts are devouring two continents, uh, over, are traveling through two continents and devouring crops. So, okay, so we're getting closer. I still think we need probably two volcanoes, but uh, the, the, the locusts really is a little, a little nail on the head, though, I gotta say. Hi, Green Majority listeners. This is Lauren, your Ottawa correspondent. Today, I bring you another edition of our new segment under social isolation. I like to call Lauren's Thoughts from Her Partner's Closet, whereby in place of chatting with Stefan and David for 20 minutes, I get to monologue in a cramped space to no one but my partner's very noisy French bulldog, Nora. This week, I'll be chatting with you briefly about the outrageous announcement that Alberta will be funneling some $7.5 billion towards the once-dead, now undead, Keystone XL pipeline. To start off with some facts, and to make sure we're operating from a position of journalistic truth and honesty, though to clarify, I'm a far cry from a journalist, I'm going to start off with reading from a press release published by Environmental Defense on Tuesday, March 30th. The press release states, Alberta Premier Jason Kenney has just announced that it will provide $1.6 billion to the company TC Energy for the construction of its Keystone XL pipeline to cover construction costs through to the end of 2020. In addition, the government of Alberta will guarantee a $6 billion loan for the project, which is now expected to, co- to cost $14 billion to build. All in all, the province will have $7.5 billion in total exposure to this single project. The Keystone XL pipeline, which has already been delayed by over a decade, would not be ready for years, if ever. If completed, the pipeline is expected to ship 830,000 barrels of crude oil per day to the U.S. Gulf Coast, which is home to the largest concentration of heavy oil refineries. 
The project still faces significant nationwide opposition in the U.S. because of the threat it poses to clean water and the climate. The pipeline still has pending regulatory approvals and legal challenges from indigenous groups, environmental groups, and communities along its nearly 2,000-kilometer route from Alberta to the U.S. Gulf Coast. So, to revisit those press release numbers, $1.6 billion is the amount being gifted to TC by the Albertan government. An additional $6 billion will be loaned to TC, also by the Albertan government, totaling $7.5 billion in Albertan taxpayer dollars going towards an oil and gas pipeline in an era of financial and societal crisis. Add to this $830,000, the number of barrels of oil the pipeline is slated to carry to the U.S. Gulf Coast, which in light of the next number I'm about to throw at you, sounds utterly ridiculous. That new number is three. $3, which is the price of a barrel of Western Select Oil going on the market on Monday of this week, which is down slightly from the some $7 it was at last week. Now, at the risk of sounding a bit folksy here, I'm going to tell you why the idea of shipping 830,000 barrels of oil when the market price is $3 a barrel sounds so ridiculous to me. And that's because my grandpa told me. My grandpa worked in the oil industry for his entire professional career, managing and overseeing refineries for most of the 60s, 70s, and 80s until he retired in the 90s. Several years of that career was spent in Alberta, where he ran a refinery for Turbo, which is a now defunct energy company you won't be familiar with, but as a child I knew quite well because they produced some super sick windbreakers and trucker hats that my whole family wore. My grandma specifically had a blue pom-pom on it, and I was always very jealous when she wore it. Anyway, when my grandpa was working in the oil sands in the 80s and 90s, he could be quoted as saying that Canadian oil sands crude wasn't economically viable if the price of oil per barrel dropped below $35. Again, that was 30 years ago. I didn't do well enough in Economics 101 to know how to adjust for inflation, but trust that if $35 a barrel was the lowest viable price for Western crude in the 90s when baby me could go see a movie for $5, my grandpa's warning likely still applies today, which means that the $3 one can currently fetch on the market for a barrel of Albertan oil makes it hardly worth the money to ship it 2,000 kilometers to Texas. While you sit with the knowledge that Canadian oil currently isn't worth the price to ship it, and is currently sitting stockpiled like one of the girls at the dance in Greece waiting for a boy to come pick her up and tell her she's worth a spin around the floor, let's turn our attention to the ridiculous realities of actually constructing this pipeline, which TC has said could happen as early as this week. Keep in mind, this podcast is being released on April 3rd. In case you've forgotten, we're currently all trapped in our houses, many unable to work or congregate in public spaces because there's a global pandemic tearing through communities of all sizes all around the world. Pipelines like Keystone XL are built by primarily male construction workers who are typically required to live on site in what are charmingly referred to as man camps. I'm not going to comment on what living in these camps is like. I'm just assuming it's like Camp Walden for girls in the Lindsay Lohan version of The Parent Trap, but truly can't be sure. What I can say, though, with certainty, is that living in any sort of communal residence, especially one in which people are crowded, tired, and overworked, and don't have much access to anything beyond the front door, is not a place I would like to be during a viral pandemic. The idea that TC would be putting people to work and having them live in close quarters right now is unbelievable. It's dangerous, it's reckless, and it risks the lives of not only those workers, but the communities which support them. We also must be reminded that because of this pandemic, millions of people are out of work, deeply suffering, and in need of government aid right now. 
Kenny announced this $7.5 billion would be going towards this project days after Alberta's education minister, Adriana LaGrange, announced she would be laying off upwards of 24,000 people in the education sector in Alberta. The way she made this announcement was in an email. All I'm saying is, when we're in the middle of a global health crisis, when people are dying every day, when millions more are left jobless, and when the public sector requires a huge infusion of investment, is an impulse purchase to the tune of $7 billion really what we need right now? I'd love to hear your thoughts, listeners. So feel free to tweet the show at Green Majority and let us know what your thoughts are on this recent investment of public dollars. Don't forget to tag Jason Kenny. With that, friends, I'm signing off for today and placing you back in the faithful hands of your reliable hosts, Stefan and David. And welcome back to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM, the sound of your freaking, freaking locked down city. I am uh, David Hostetter with Stefan Hostetter. We just heard from Lauren Latour. Thank you very much, Lauren. And uh, we will be hearing from Saren Kaster at the end about uh, UBI. And uh, right now, Stefan would like to respond uh, to what we just heard from Lauren. Well, respond seems as if I'm, I'm, I'm counteracting it, more so uh, c- carrying forward, shall we okay. say. Um, yeah, specifically actually just about the, the confusion that I, honestly, I've been having about the different prices of barrels of oil that we keep hearing about, mm-hmm. um, because because there's this, there's, so basically the the main key difference is that there's, the when we hear... The three dollar barrel of oil is WCS, so Western Canadian Select. Select, um, and and that is a that and that is a price of oil that is sort of a it's a it's a it's a thicker thing, and that it gets sent somewhere to then get to then to then get dealt with, and so that's not actually the exact price of a barrel of oil that we are selling on. Sort of that is the actual that when you consider the more general price of oil. So the the like the current barrel of oil. Uh, right now, uh, it, for for what we what is more considered widely across you know used across globally is twenty one dollars or twenty dollars a barrel of oil. Um, now the three dollars is certainly is three dollars has fallen from I believe twenty something recently, so it's still a significant drop and is definitely still losing the money. Um, but there's a slight like the but the, the, that's just the slight difference. However, I just want to quote. To back up uh, the the silliness and the uncompletely unreasonableness of any investment in this whatsoever, uh, I'm going to quote from the Financial Post, which let me just tell you, it basically consistently publishes climate denial. So they are not a leftist newspaper. Uh, this is a quote uh, from one of their articles uh, from a man named Randy Olenberger, uh, who's an analyst at the Bank of Montreal. Uh, and and was during an interview in BNN Bloomberg Television, stating, "quote the simply the, the industry simply doesn't doesn't work at these prices." Olenberger said, "I don't mean the U.S. shale or Canadian oil sands. I mean the industry globally doesn't work at these prices." Uh, so that's just and that is and that is a statement saying for you know these are that's for all oil owners not the higher the higher cost that Canada and the United States are dealing with and you know yet here we are investing 7 billion dollars 7.5 billion dollars and again probably more once the once the federal stimulus comes out so 
let's just let's listen to the Financial Post, everyone. Let's listen to the let's listen to the oil companies that are bailing from the oil sands and find a way to provide help for these workers that is not locking us back into this uh, this this whole system. Well, it is it is uh, it is here. It is here. We're here. I was uh, speaking with a uh, man today who votes conservative in Ontario, and uh, he was telling me that he understands the science of climate change and that it needs to change. Uh, but look at all of our technologies. Look at everything. Look at our boats. All the all the shipping runs on diesel. All the cars run on gas, and that's the way it is. That's what that's what's happening. And if you're talking about changing that, you're talking about changing the world. He said. And. Uh, yeah, he seemed rather daunted by the task. Which, yet, and yet, when you think about the price point of some of many of these things, the price point is, you know, is well within reason. Like the price, like, like, especially, like, we're, we're about to spend. We're like the United States government just spent two trillion dollars to 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 try address this. The the amount that I believe Bernie Sanders' most expensive version of a full Green New Deal, which which was just a mammoth operation, which I believe six trillion dollars, and mm-hmm. and many people are estimating that the, the transition that the, that the transition that, that that the bailout package will end up costing almost that much anyways because of some of these other weird amounts of money that are being funded, wow. and so like this is to pretend what we've done in the last few days and weeks has given up on the concept that the government cannot spend mass amounts of money to change the world and the economy. Yeah, because what was the entire argument against the Green New Deal? It's it was too, too expensive. expensive. Exactly. And and this is what it, it's been that, that cannot that that you can't say that again, right? Like if you can find immediately trillions of dollars to give the airline industries, you can find the money to build a better world. So one of the things I'd like to look at today is the way that different uh, parts of our economy and parts of our community um, would be affected by a universal basic income and some of the counterintuitive concepts uh, that come along with that. So right now, because our system is primarily that, you know, nobody gets anything unless you can prove you need it. And then we have these really, in some cases, extremely narrowly defined cases where people might get um you know funding for things they apply to this body they do this there's entire buildings full of people um who like you know control you know these people get money they're uh for music videos or recording contract all these things um and then we have an attempt to on the sort of consumption side we have uh the canadian government with canadian content uh laws which i actually think totally makes sense i have no problem with canadian content laws um but what's, I think, really confusing about this for me is that, I mean, essentially, at the end of the day, it's because the I think the people designing the rules are unable to imagine anyone whose only goal in life is not making as much money as possible. Um, and I have good news for you. Um, there's a whole lot of people who just want to contribute to the world and they hope they get enough 
back from it that they are fine. Um, you know, and a lot of these people are artists and a lot of these people are, uh, people who work for charities and not for profits. We'll get to them in a minute, but for now we're talking about artists. So if we had a universal basic income, um, you wouldn't need any grants for any type of music because this UBI would be, as I say, about being fine. So fine means if I'm just going to decide, I just want to be on that full time, um, until I die, essentially. Um, you could be, that would be the idea. And as far as all of our arts and culture and our playwrights and all those artists that we want to support, things that are not just beneficial to Canadian society uh, from a cultural point of view, but also from an economic point of view. And we just say, great, just collect your thing. Um, and what we'll do if you're an artist is that Canada has now the government, not the government, um, but the Canadian people have supported your work and will continue to do so. And in exchange, we simply, you know, own in the sense that we're allowed to use it. Um, we have full rights to use, maybe is a better way to put it, anything that's produced. So any, they could be a filmmaker, they could be a visual artist, they could be a painter, they could be anything. If they're not terribly concerned with making a million dollars and they just want to put their art out and be appreciated for their contribution to society, they just do that. Um, and in exchange, what the Canadian people have in this case essentially funded, they now own. So if a Canadian musician were to make a beautiful song and a Canadian uh, aspiring screenwriter maybe um, wants to make a film and put that song in the film, well, they just credit it and away they go, as long as it's Canadian to Canadian. Um, I think there's a number of ways in which this could work if people were really interested in like having numbers around it, maybe, you know, we don't, no one would ever be in a position of saying this is not good enough art, um, obviously, because that's such a gray area, but, you know, we could say, um, you know, you need to submit a certain number of things, but we're not going to nitpick what that is. Or I even think there was a really, um, I was thinking there was a really interesting idea where, you know, there's a lot of people who would just be so proud to have their work, um, seen that, you know, people, uh, government, even governments themselves could just ask for like submissions and it wouldn't really matter what the individual quality of those submissions were because they might get like 600 and then they could just flip through them and pick one. Um, the person who was chosen, whether it be a song or a piece of artwork, um, would get credited and celebrated and give the, the, the due, the thing that in a lot of ways I think that they want, which is just for their work to be seen and be appreciated, and for them in, indirectly to be appreciated as well. It's what we all want. Um, so we focus on that rather than the, the financial rewards. We simply give people the piece to create, um, and then we all get to benefit from the result because we all chipped in. Um, I think a lot of people would be happy with that. Um, and I don't think that this would have to be in perpetuity. Um, the whole idea about this UBI, there's a number of ways you could do it. It could be just everyone gets it no matter what. It could be uh, you opt into it and that you can opt out of it at any time. But the idea would be is that this doesn't prevent anyone from being a commercial artist. Um, it just means that while you're on this thing, we own what you get. And if you want to sign a deal to go private, great. You stop getting the UBI and anything you create after that point with your deal with whoever 
is, you know, is normal commercial. The idea here is to provide an opportunity for the, I think, really underappreciated huge segments of our society which just want to give back and be left alone, essentially. Not left alone, but just just be. There's, there's so many. Um, and so many that would give so much more than the financial worth in a traditional economic sense of what they're contributing is worth just because they enjoy doing it and they can do it. Um, you know, don't forget as well that because of the commercial impacts uh, on most artists, a lot of the time, if you want to be commercially successful, you have to pivot your work to what's commercially successful, which may not be what you want to create the most. Um, and again, this doesn't take away that. This is just in addition to that, to better capture um, the needs of people and to really, I mean, in a way, this would be the most impactful arts funding you could ever imagine. Because again, people could still run a commercial theater and hire maybe for some money or not actors. Um, you know, there could be different things. You could, there could be a system where in the under the you get a U, UBI no matter what, um, you know, even if you even if you are employed, like it's not like a souped up unemployment that applies to everyone. It might just be everybody gets it. Um, you know, with different different ways to do this, but you know, it could just be a matter of, you know, Canadian people keeps everything that's published in Canada, but any music sales uh, internationally are entirely the artists. Um, this is already set up through, you know, that might sound really complicated, but this is essentially already tracked for music, for instance, uh, and film. But I know I know more about music, where this is already how it works. Canadian uh, organization, the name is escaping me right now, but will like essentially track plays internationally. And there's this big like sort of, you know, compare numbers and everyone gets paid at the end of the year. Um, so if a Canadian artist were to blow up in another country, they would get something for that. Um, this would actually make all that simpler. And, you know, what I think is really appreciated about this as well is that this would create so much art and culture in Canada. Um, and there's a lot of things that I think would fall under this as well. Um, as we pivot towards my sort of other example I want to talk about today, which is like charities and not-for-profits. Um, you know, one of the biggest shames in Canadian history has been on a relationship with First Nations people. Um, I would just sort of, you know, even if there was some restrictions we were going to put on artists, I would essentially just say, uh, without the ownership, obviously, like, yeah, Indigenous people in Canada are contributing to our culture and have contributed to our culture and essentially are just going to be, you know, compensated for that. Um, if someone wants to say that that's uh, reparations under another name, um, sure, you can call it whatever you want. Um, you know, again, it's about, you know, what do we want and what's the simplest way to give it? And if this, what we want and the simplest way to give it is everyone's at each other's throats to make a million dollars, well, then maybe the system right now is fine. Um, but I know that's not the case. So in Ontario, there's like over 150,000 volunteers. Uh, there's an army of volunteers. Um, in Ontario, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of charities. Um, a lot of them overlap. Um, and, you know, because of people just trying to do things where they live, there's something's missing where I need it to be. 
Um, and so you do it. Uh, or sometimes people have different ideas about ways to do things. Um, but we have all these charities that are essentially filling in gaps in what our society is supposed to be providing. So, you know, really for me, the, the reason why the idea of charity, of course, I, I of course admire anyone who, you know, works at a charity or not profit. The point is you shouldn't have to be doing it in that way. It's not a matter of you're a bad person or charities are bad, but they shouldn't exist because in, or most of them shouldn't, um, because these are just externalized costs that really all of society pays for and all of, all of society benefits from them, those problems being addressed and would have benefit more if they were more addressed. Um, but really this just, you know, by, by pretending that we're not going to, and that this is something optional, really, this is just off putting, um, a big portion of that onto, uh, the people who will pay for it. Um, and because of that, not only is that not fair because some people are paying for it and everyone benefits, but it's also immensely inefficient because there's a thousand people doing a thousand things that may even, and sometimes be at cross purposes. Um, another thing that really takes away from, you know, all the energy and work that goes into all of those charities and not-for-profits doing amazing work is that they have to spend so much of their time begging for money. Um, this wouldn't necessarily eliminate the need for people to do some fundraising, particularly if, you know, depending on what they're doing may require hardware needs that may, you know, there's still going to be perhaps needs for things to exist and for external funding. But so many people would love to just go and help a community garden or, you know, spend like essentially work in a soup kitchen as a full-time job. People would do this. People are caring and they're just not doing it because we're not letting them. Um, and I think that's really what it comes, you know, down to, which is really my overall sort of thought for the day, which is, you know, these were a couple examples. I barely got into them. I probably, you know, that not all that was probably super clear. Um, but the point I think is just to think about is that when we're talking about, you know, something like universal basic income, or we're just talking about like the costs of society, um, so much of the costs that we actually do pay has just been externalized um, in an attempt to pretend it doesn't exist. Um, but not only do those problems continue to exist, those costs continue to exist. And effectively, all we're really doing is choosing to spend them in spend that money and those resources in the least efficient manner possible, um, and in the least sustainable manner possible. One of the things I'll always, always remember about talking to charities not for profits is, you know, the size of the donation. Uh, uh, you know, a million dollar donation is great, but it doesn't really help them that much. They'd much much rather have a fifty thousand dollar a month donation that's guaranteed for 10 years because what's important to these organizations whether it's not shouldn't be that you know rocket science business is the same way um, but especially for service providing charities not for profits that are really just like we have to provide this and we're just going to have to make our resources fit this end as opposed to a business which can just be like well we're just going to change our business model is that continuation um, this would take all the volunteers and the charity workers and make their time so much more effective because so much of what they do could just be done without having to, to spend all this other money and time and resources. They'd be have the ability um, to be more effective and more people would join them because there's so many people that would love to but just can't or would love to maybe work less and just volunteer a bunch. Um, 
the last thing I'll leave you with, because I'm coming up on my time limit for today, is that almost nine and a half percent of Canada was unemployed before COVID-19. When we help those people, <laughs> they don't go away. They don't disappear. They also don't, we've helped them. Um, people have homes, they have food, they can start to actually like psychologically readjust to being in daily life. We have basic needs, basic education, it might take time. But you know what those people are almost certainly going to be really happy to do? Hey, do you want to help us help more people like you now that you've been helped? And I think you can add another 10% of the population right there to people that would be willing to volunteer, volunteer their time to help others because nobody knows how much that help is needed like the people who need it.